0: It's only the people who have never read me that'll say, oh, it's full of sex and lust and it's just trash, you know. When they read me and they haven't before, say somebody's come to interview me from a serious newspaper, they will go, Well, I read the book, you know, and I wasn't looking forward to it. But I really, you know, it's so funny, it's witty and perceptive, and it's a good story, and I couldn't put it down.
1: And they'll be That kind of reaction is great. So I, you know, I don't care what they say about me, because I know that the people who are buying my books understand what I do and enjoy what I do. And to me, that, you know, means everything.
0: That was the voice of Jackie Collins. Juggernaut? Is that how we describe her? Lady Boss. Lady Boss, an author of many terrific books, including Hollywood Wives, which has just celebrated its 40th anniversary with a brand new edition. We were so lucky to be able to speak to Rory Green and Tiffany Lerman, Jackie's daughters, about their mom's legacy, about her books, about her writing, and about what it was like to live life with Jackie Collins. This is Faded Mates, I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and critic. And I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. One thing we'll be talking about today, along with Jackie's legacy as an author and her life as a writer, is the Netflix documentary Lady Boss, which tells the story of Jackie's life. Um, After she died, Tiffany and Rory and Tracy found their mom's extensive you know, diaries, letters and everything. And um, it's a really terrific uh, viewing experience. So um, if you want to pause and go watch that and come back or listen to the conversation, I think you'll be really inspired to watch it after. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Tiffany and Rory. Welcome, Rory Green and Tiffany Lerman, Jackie Collins' daughters. We are so excited to have you with us on Theta
2: Mates. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Sarah and Jennifer. We're very excited to be here.
0: Yes, thank you for having us. For our listeners, we really recommend that you watch the Netflix documentary about Jackie Collins called Lady Boss. And Tiffany and Rory, can you tell us a little bit about how, before we sort of start talking about your mom as a writer, how did
2: that documentary come into being? Oh, well, that's very interesting because she's been gone, um, gosh, almost eight years now. um, And it's been really hard for us. You know, she left us with this incredible treasure trove of an archive. And when Rory and I and our other sister, Tracy, were going through everything, she literally had kept every single piece of correspondence um, and just anything that she had received. So this was this beautiful archive. And we all looked at each other and we just said, "She, that a documentary needs to be made about her. There is so much life here, so much more that people don't know about her. And it was so important for us to see if we could get this story made. Mm-hmm. And this this is Rory. One of the things that um, the when, when the director came on for the documentary, she realized that, you know, there was a whole story that our mother who was, you know, just naturally, just a storyteller, that was her lifeline was telling stories, but that she'd never actually told her own story. And so I think that was also why the director was so inspired by the project, because she thought there's a much more complex story behind this woman than most people who knew of her or had heard of her would ever imagine. And so she really wanted to make a film that showed our mother as, you know, a dimensional person and the extraordinary trajectory that got her to where she was. Well, and I think that that's what's so
0: fascinating about it. Obviously, we're a romance novel podcast, so so many of the things that Jackie Collins was saying on tape in in this documentary felt like things that we have heard before. We have we have been screaming for years as a genre. And so it felt like this wonderful experience of seeing somebody who just was such a huge legend, a huge force in publishing, saying it long before, you know, I, Jen and I, you know, have been saying it on the podcast. So um, I wonder if we could start at the kind of beginning with your mom as a, and I know that you weren't there at the beginning. So, <laughs> but I'm so happy to hear there was such an, a lush archive. Um, one of the things that I really wished, and obviously this is because I'm a nerd and a writer and I want to talk about books all the time, I wish there was a little more of, is could you paint a little picture of how? books and your mother came to be because it feels like you don't tumble into being a writer of Jackie Collins's caliber.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Well, this is Tiffany. Um, We knew that Well, she loved books from a very early age. Like she read um, a lot when she was growing up. Um, You know, there's articles where she talks about that. But for us, the reason we knew that she loved reading so much was that one of her favorite authors was an an English author called Enid Blyton. Of course. Um, yeah. And so one of her favorite books growing up that she read growing up was um, The Magic Faraway Tree. And she read that to my sisters and I when we were growing up. So we have these incredible memories of this specific book, The Magic Faraway Tree. We even read it to our children when they were growing up. Um, and I think... It's, it, it holds such importance in her life because she loved the cast of characters that was part of this book. And so, you know, it, it sort of goes through into her writing with her cast of characters too. But there was always something happening that was always very exciting. You know, they would go up into the top of the tree and they'd be in a different land. Um, and she used, to, she used to read it to us. She used to do all the character voices too. Um, and it was just, it was really special because... Uh, It holds such importance for us. And we knew it it was very important for her, too. So that was definitely, Enid Blyton was definitely one of the authors who influenced her growing up. But then there were others. I mean, I know, Rory, you can speak about that. Well, yes. What was interesting is that she was always so character focused and she would say that it was, you know, the characters wrote her rather than she writing the characters. Um, and I think that, as Tiff said in the Enid Blyton books, like there was a different character on every branch. And if you, you know, our mother wrote 31 novels and if, you know, and she has what one of her expertise was weaving all these different characters together. And she was also good at just like painting this brushstroke, like one brushstroke and you got exactly who she was talking about. Mm-hmm. And so I think when she, we know that when she was growing up, she was fascinated. She loved those magical fantasy books, but she also loved crime fiction. Um, one of her favorite books of all time was The Great Gatsby. Uh, she loved The Godfather by Mario Puzo, which really influenced her work, particularly when she wrote her epic novel, Chances. Um, she was very interested in male authors, particularly. Ina Blyton was a female author, but most of her favorite authors were male because there weren't that many female authors sure, for, for her to refer to, which was interesting. So she also loved um, Harold Robbins and Sidney Sheldon, who were her contemporaries at the time
0: say I remember those names like I'm I didn't read your mom's books when I, I was like a little too young in the right. 80s you know what I mean but I definitely was super aware of Jackie Collins books they were glamorous in a way that like those Sidney Sheldon and Harold Robbins like it felt like this trifecta of like these are glamour glamorous writers writing about glamorous people doing glamorous things
2: yeah, exactly. But what she'd say about Harold Robbins was that she's like she loved his books and she loved the plotline and she loved the characters. She's like, but the women were always in the kitchen, you know. Yeah, <laughs> the, the women were not at the forefront. They they were not the ones who were being bold and brave and making the strides and calling the shots. And I think that you know she was so driven to write in a different kind of way to write essentially at that time how she felt a man could write. She wanted to give herself full permission. I love this because I feel like.
0: It's not you you just named all those authors and and I feel like it's so not a surprise because every one of those authors is such a plot they they're such a story a storyteller you know that's the word that we kept coming back to in the documentary you've you've said it already and it those books are big exciting interesting stories and so it doesn't surprise me that she was drawn to them
2: yeah.
0: um I wonder if you could talk about the writing piece uh, because we're obviously fascinated by that process here. Um, but And also, it feels like she lived this big, glamorous life. She was, a, she was a voyeur of sorts in this Hollywood world, this sort of glamorous world, and clearly was going to parties and meeting people and having this sort of elaborate life. But we know the truth here, which is the books don't write themselves. So (laughs) what was a day like for her? When did she write? And how was writing for her? What What was the experience of writing for her? Did she talk a lot about that with you? Were you able to intuit it? as a, I will say my daughter likes to say like, no one knows how hard it is to be the child of an author. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So if you'd oh, like she, me to, you know, hook you up with her to mentor yeah.
1: her through this challenge. <laughs> <laughs>
2: more than we half. can relate, right? We can relate on so many levels. <laughs> no, she, well, she, in every house that we lived in, she always had her dedicated study um, and that was her workroom. So if the study door was closed, you, you really couldn't or shouldn't go in. But mm-hmm. it didn't stop us from going in. We would still always, <laughs> you know, we, we, would, we would always go in. But even from when we were very small, growing up in London, she had the study, but she was always, she was very disciplined because she was always there for us. She'd, she'd wake up, she'd make us breakfast, she'd take us to school, and then she would go home and she would write all day. She didn't usually break for lunch either. She would write all day and then she would get back in the car, pick us up from school, and then she was back on mum mode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so she was very disciplined. Later on, you know, when we were adults and not living in the house, she still had the beautiful study. You know, this time it was a little bit bigger and more glamorous because, we, you know, she'd moved to Hollywood. And um, it was the same thing. You know, if that door was closed, we knew that she was working, but sometimes we'd always go in. And, it you know, it was always fun because sometimes we'd go in and she'd be in the middle of a chapter or a middle of a sentence and she'd say, ah, perfect, sit down, I need to read you this so oh, you know I love if, it. Yeah, <gasps> if she could if she could ever grab any of us including yeah. the grand the grandchildren too she'd do it all um she'd say sit down i need to read you this and then she would read um an excerpt from the chapter that she was writing and she'd she'd read in the character voices you know i don't know if you've and i'm sure there's listeners who have listened to her books on tape she would do her character voices really really well she'd really get into them it's almost like you know it is like acting and um so we knew exactly, you know, what the character sounded like. And it was very fun for us because we get an idea of, you know, what, we, what sh- she was working on. And she'd always love our input. You know, what did you think? Or, she,
0: one of the things that was really striking about the documentary was um, her handwriting. Right. Mm. So they showed several times like her, right. Like it looked like she was writing it. So do you remember her like writing in longhand or was, I mean, was it, she was the type of person to like keep notes places or, I mean, obviously at some point she transitioned to like more modern technology, but you know,
2: no, oh, she, no, she, no. She really never did Jennifer. She never transitioned to more modern technology. She always wrote in hand in the, her own handwriting. She had really beautiful scripts. she did it's almost like for us it's so evocative when we see our mother's handwriting it's like hearing her voice because you know we are so you know just it was everywhere her handwriting was everywhere like she had you know certain notebooks there was only certain pens that she liked to use she kept a little spiral notebook in her purse and her handbag whenever we went out I remember like going shopping for like school uniforms or something and she'd be like taking notes of dialogue of people that she'd be listening to you know while we're (laughs) together. our shoes fitted she was always taking notes and you know and and also as you say as a voyeur kind of at party she was kind of hiding in plain sight right <laughs> she was but she was doing her research she was always researching her characters and and that was like it was almost like method acting like that. as Tiff said she was you know she she did have a background in acting but that was she brought that I think to her whole creative process the other interesting thing about her space I like you know we're so accustomed to that to thinking about like, like guys having a man cave, right? So, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But our mother always had like this dedicated, you know, space that was her working space. It was like her, you know, it was like her woman, her lady boss cave essentially. <laughs> and she always made sure that she had a space in the house, as Tiff said. And what was so beautiful about it was she had her desk and she had her chair. There was always a chair opposite her. And as Tiff said, she welcomed in and we could sit, and we could read. But I, when I remember my childhood, it's all, it's almost like, what was special was that there was a chair on the other side of the desk so that we could become part of that process alongside her. Um, and she was incredibly disciplined. She used to say she never got writer's block, but she did get getting to the desk block, you know. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes right. that was difficult. And she was, you know, she marketed herself. She went through seasons. So she always had her season of writing. A book would take about a year, maybe a year and a half. But then she'd have her publicity season. And it's like, I think the film really delved into this, how she put on different you know, almost like different yes personas for those different parts of her life and the different seasons in her life. And even up until um, she passed away, she had handwritten every single one of her books. So Amazing. she would she would sit and she would handwrite everything. So that's why she only released one book a year. There were other authors out there who were coming out, you know, with books every couple of months. And she just didn't want to change her process. That was her process. She would hand it over to an assistant who would then type it. And then she would go back to the typed written manuscript. And then she would make corrections. She had a really interesting and different process that I don't think a lot of authors have. You know, it's it, you know, I think everybody is on computers and doing it that way. And hers was just, you know, that because she used to say she she didn't map out anything. She never wrote outlines. She said her characters would take her there. So she had to handwrite it because it was almost like they took over her whole persona as she was writing.
0: This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Pocket Bookshop in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Pocket Bookshop is one of my favorite places in the universe. It's an anti-racist, feminist, queer, women-owned business in Lancaster, which is right now perfect for a fall visit. With pumpkin patches and, you know, rolling golden hills, it's amazing. It's exactly what you want in the fall. But Pocket has launched this very cool thing called Pocket Picks, and it is a monthly subscription exclusively available through them, and the books are curated by the staff at Pocket. So you fill out a questionnaire and tell them who and what you love to read, and they send you every month a hand-picked book for you and your reading taste, including... Jen, this is amazing. An introductory letter explaining why they're so excited about the book. So cute. A sealed letter for when they, you're finished containing their a spoiler letter. An analysis. I love it. Sign copies when you can get them. Letters from the author if you can get them. Stickers, bookmarks, etc. And if it's a new release during the first week of publication, you get 15% off. What is not to love about this? And you're going to be there this weekend. I am. If you're listening to this episode this week, September 13th, on the weekend, Joanna Shoop, Adriana Herrera, and I are road tripping to Lancaster to have a day of talking about romances and meeting romance readers and hanging out at the bookstore. And we are so excited. Tickets are still available. You can get them all at pocketbookshop.com. That's books plural, pocket. Bookshop.com. Um, or as always, you can check links, uh, in show notes. We hope to see you there. Yeah. Thanks to pocket bookshop in Lancaster for being an awesome store and for sponsoring the episode. So once the book is finished, did she have a, an editor who was a partner in this or do you know this? Do you know about this part? I guess. (laughs) Was there one, were there more than one? Was it, you know, that, that relationship is always interesting.
2: It is. It's, it's a fascinating relationship. And there were always multiple editors. She also, over the years, had multiple publishers. But to be perfectly honest, her first reader always was our father. So, and, and the, and again, the Lady Boss, the, the Jackie Collins story tells the story of how our father was the one to encourage her. You know, she'd always been writing. And one of the things that, uh, that we didn't mention, but that we were just, Just completely delighted by is that after she died, we, you know, when we were going through everything, we found these books that she had started to write when she was 13 years old. And they were called these things called teenagers, right? And then she she had different installments. So there was like the French and the American. (laughs) <laughs> and, and our aunt did, illustr- our Aunt Joan did illustrations, which she would then cut out and paste into these books. They're these beautiful books, but the most amazing thing about them was that there was Jackie Collins on the page at the age of 13, like her voice was right there. And that was just astonishing to see, like at such an early age, how she'd been developing that voice. But, you know, she it took her, she didn't have the confidence when she was a young woman and, and finishing her novel. And it was our father who, you know, just adored her and, and was really just a huge proponent of an advocate for her work. Um and he encouraged her. And so throughout his lifetime, um, whenever she wrote a the book, they were partners in that. So he would be the her first reader and he would make notes to begin with and and not extensive note because to be perfectly honest she really didn't like anybody
0: (laughs) (laughs) that seems fair i mean if your characters are speaking right to you it does seem like a bit of an imposition if someone else thinks they know better
2: exactly but he had some comments and then she had um an editor in 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 london called suzanne babanau at um simon schuster who worked with our mother for many many years and they had a very close connected relationship suzanne you Suzanne likes to say that she wished she could run a university course on Jackie Collins because, you know, she she was so enamored by our mother's creative process and about and and you know, again, she would give a few comments here and there, but there was very little editing that happened.
0: But this is so fascinating to me because one of the things that we hear so much, especially in genre fiction and romance, especially, right, is that the books aren't art so much as they are just craft, right? These are These are, you know, they're a very nice chair, but you wouldn't hang them on your wall as a painting. (laughs) And I don't mean your mother's books. I mean, all of the books in, in, you know, the romance genre and many, you know, many books in genre in general. And I wonder, would your mother have agreed with that assessment that sort of, I'm a craftsman, not an artist? Or did she think, how did she, what was her relationship to the actual creation, the creativity process? Like, I know that obviously, like, she put on a, she put on a persona of Jackie Collins, but... Ma, Jackie, the writer, how did she feel about the work?
2: It's going back to what we said at the beginning. She just she just felt she was a storyteller, and she wanted to entertain her readers. I think that was the most important thing for her. And she used to say, she used to say she'd turn on the television and see the news and see these awful things happening in the world. And she just wanted to give this escapism to her reader, to take them to another you know, another level to just, you know, let them not worry about all these terrible things that were happening in the world and, and have this escapism moment where they could just enjoy themselves and go on this ride with her. That's mm-hmm. what she used to say. I think it's fair to say that also that she had gone through a lot of terrible things in her life. Like she'd had a lot of trauma and and her creative her creative sense was that it was her lifeline. You know, I think that writing kept her alive and that's why we hear from so many readers, and she did over the years, but you know, in the years since she died, we've heard from so many readers. I mean, honestly saying that's why we get so frustrated when people are so dismissive of our mother's work and she said, Oh, trashy beach read, because she, it was, it kept her alive. I do believe that, but it also has been a lifeline for so many of her readers. You know, we've heard from so many people who said, Like, you know, I changed, I I changed course of my life or, you know, you gave me hope or, you know, you, you helped me find the strength that I didn't know I had. And I think that that really came through her work because that, that was the same impact it was having on herself as the writer.
0: Right. Lucky was such an
2: inspiration, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like I say this in the documentary, I say, we heard from so many people they, they are in a bad situation and they say, well, what would Jackie Collins do? What would Lucky Sant'Angelo do? You know, channel the Lucky Sant'Angelo energy, but it's true. Yeah. And be- because like Rory said, we've, we have so many messages and we read them. We're like, oh my goodness. Like the, the way people describe like how just reading this novel and making them feel empowered and making them feel confident that they can make changes in their life because of a character in a book or because of something that our mom said in an interview, you know, it's, it's really special.
0: There's a lot of like public ways in which her books and even her as an author for bringing it, you know, for writing this way was really publicly like pilloried. Like there's a really shocking scene where like she has to sit there and let an audience full of people just (laughs) tell her she's terrible. But I mean, it was really, and, and, and yet. I am when watching it, and afterwards, when Sarah and I talked, we're sure that like million, many, many more readers had the experience of like, no, this changed my life, right? How did she balance? Did she ever talk about like sort of the public perception of her work versus the way that many other readers, you know, contacted her, or was she just kind of like, you know, this is what I have to put up with because it's the eighties? I don't know.
2: Yeah, I, I think in some the, in some ways she understood that it was just what she had to endure, and she did endure it. You know, she was very rebellious, our mother, but she was gracious with it. Like you know, she was such a she gracious, is, yeah,
0: immensely gracious right. in these interviews. She was a gracious
2: rebel, so she had to take a lot of shit. But you'll see on so many interviews, and so often, particularly in the seventies and eighties, she's being interviewed by men, and they, you know, they show some of that in the documentary, and they are being so condescending. And so disparaging. And she was vilified for being provocative, you know, because she was writing about predominantly men's objectification of women. And she had been objectified as a young woman and continued to be objectified throughout her career, right? So she was, she was always pushing back against that. And I think she knew that would come, you know, that would come with some pushback as well. But it's not, she was human, you know, and she was, she was a sensitive person. She was a creative person and a lot of creative people are highly sensitive. So I think it definitely hurt her, but she was also incredibly resilient and she had just learned over the years how to bounce back or otherwise she wouldn't have been able to continue in career in the way that she did. And also at the end of the day, as you said, she understood that in fact, you know, that was only a small percentage, the critics, the haters who were lashing out majority. She had such a, she adored her readers, you know, and she was, she was so open to connecting with them and hearing their comments. And, you know, Tiff and I always say, you know, it's such a shame. She would love to be here now, particularly with the rise of, you know, all the ways that you can connect via social media. She had just, she'd been really into, like, she was tweeting and getting really into to Twitter and a little bit on Instagram, but there's so much more now that she would love to be engaged in because she loved that, that relationship between her and her readership. Did she have a group of other writer friends
0: who were in the world with her, um, who she talked about writing with or who you, who she interacted with?
2: Well, she had her contemporaries like Daniel Steele and Judith Krantz. Um, I mean, she didn't, she wasn't in any sort of like writing groups or anything with No, them. She no, no. But... Them, yeah. She would see them like socially, really only socially. And I don't know how much they talked about work, but I do know that they, they would, you know, mingle, they were at dinner parties together and they definitely emailed, um, and so she was very supportive of other authors, especially female authors, um, and she was always being sent, um, you know, new manuscripts, would you, mi- you know, and being asked, would you mind giving us a quote about this, and she, you know, she would always give a lovely quote, she would always read them too, and at book signings, you know, lots of the questions from um, people and fans who would show up at book signings was, how do I become an author, and she would love to you know, she would love to tell people how to, how to start. You know, it's just, she used to say, just, she'd say, pick up a pen and write a chapter or write a few sentences every day. And at the end of a year, you'll have a book. <laughs> so simple, so easy. Exactly. I know. <laughs> Yeah, but she was encouraging, but she also would laugh about it because she said she had so many people come up to her and say, "Oh, you know, I let me tell you about the book that I have in me, you know." Oh yeah. Oh I'm yeah. To want to write my story." And she was <laughs> like, oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> I have my own ideas." <laughs> yeah. It's
0: funny that way. Yeah. One of the things that struck I think both of us when we are watching is um that in the new ep- the new edition of Hollywood Wives, which is its 40th anniversary edition, Colleen Hoover writes the introduction. And Colleen Hoover, in a lot of ways, shares a very similar – like, I, I actually wrote it down, right? Like, there's a part in the documentary where it says, like, she turned women who weren't readers into readers. Yeah. And I think Colleen Hoover has that same exact profile. Like, we see many people who are like, I didn't even know I liked reading until Colleen Hoover. Yeah. So I also think there's a way in which, you know, she was, like, capturing something about the way – um, like in her time, right, about like how women and girls interact with fiction that does tell us like women's stories and girls' stories are kind of stupid or silly, and she really, you know, taps into that, but she was such an astute businesswoman in that way, right? So was she aware at some point of like I've harnessed something like in the business of writing that no one else is really doing?
2: That's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible the trajectory that Colleen Hoover has had. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Um, and I think that um, I think she really would have enjoyed like meeting with her and, and getting to know her now. I mean, it's um, but it, it you're right. It is the same. She's given she's given uh, women and readers who never have read before this opportunity to really enjoy reading when they've never had that you know, inclination to pick up a book
0: before. You know, Colleen says very clearly that women have, uh, that women need to be stronger. Well, this is the quote from Jackie. Women need to be stronger. Women have, have always been pushed into positions in the bedroom, the kitchen, the workforce. My books are successful because I'm turning the double standard on its head. And then Colleen says to say that she paved the way for writers like myself is an understatement. Jackie Collins's daring, unapologetic stroke of the pen combined with her glorious wit has single-handedly given creative license to new generations of authors and storytellers. And I think, Colleen, it's not, it's fair to say she means women and other people who have not been heard over the years and have not been storytellers.
2: Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And I love that sense of giving voice to the voiceless. Um, and I think that's why, again, coming back around to the theme of her being a lifeline, I think that's the sense because so many people was like, well, you know, they, when they open up the books, it's like they discover, they see themselves reflected or, or they get lost in this fantasy world and they see that there's another, they see possibility. Um, I think she did this beautiful balance of juggling, you know, what felt very real and then what felt very fantastical in a way, you know? Yeah. When people think of our mum, they think of, oh, it's just glamorous Hollywood, but she actually wrote like a very diverse spectrum of characters.
0: Mm-hmm. And this real sense of women, the heroines of her books being being women who thrived, who could thrive. Yeah. And, um, you know, I I was talking to somebody in publishing the other day about about your mom and we were talking about how you know publishing the business of publishing referred to your mom and Judith Crand and Barbara Taylor Bradford and Danielle Steele as sex and shopping books. That's how they called them you know in this you know in the back room when they were talking about them in marketing and you know that often she was mentioned in the same breath as Jacqueline Suzanne who of course was the generation before her but in Jacqueline Suzanne's books. People die. You know, the heroines die. And in your mom's books, heroines thrive. And of course, the books are far more than sex and shopping, but publishing was all men at the time, right? You know, everybody making decisions. So there was also this sense of this was so new and such a fresh idea that we might live this kind of life and also survive. And it feels so simple, but
2: transformative, She was allowing women to take control of their lives through her writing, which and they hadn't had this expression or or way of being able to do it before. So she was she was allowing this sort of confidence, building this confidence in her readers. And that's what they came away from reading the books with. Wow, I can do that. That was her motto, girls can do anything. You know, she really instilled that in my sisters and I, you know, that, that girls can do anything. So we grew up thinking, you know, we, we could do anything basically. I mean, you know, realize it's a much harder world out there, but, but we're, we're very, she raised three very confident, uh, you know, young women. Um, and as we grew up, we knew that. So I, th- I think it relates to the, her readers too. They, they sort of felt that they could gain this confidence after reading.
0: This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Angelina M. Lopez, author of Full Moon Over Freedom. Well, Jen, as you know, uh, After Hours on Milagro Street, which is the first book in this series, was one of my very, very favorite books of the last year. And now Full Moon Over Freedom is the book that I have been waiting for. It's finally out. It was out earlier this month, and I'm so excited to finally get to talk about it because, all right, our heroine, Jillian Armstead Bancroft, was the perfect child. She was class valedictorian. She was, like, town darling. She was a perfect witch, uh, a wife and a mother. And then she left Freedom, Kansas, like, full of hopes and dreams and have having been, like, perfect in every way. Problem is, sometime after leaving Freedom, she got cursed. Uh, oh, no. Uh-huh. So, uh, and this is not not a small curse. This is a pretty big curse. She's not able to do any magic at all. She's lost her whole magical life. So in order to fix it, she has to go back to freedom to, like, work it all out. And by working it all out, she, through the structure of the book, she has to do a bunch of bad stuff. Oh, boy. And one of the bad things she wants to do is, like, just cut loose and have some, like, no strings attached sex And uh, Nikki Mendoza turns up um, and she thinks this is all great because Nikki and she were together a long time ago. He was her first um, when they were younger and now he's back for just one weekend. So he is the ideal man to launch her down the path of ruination, except Nikki is also cursed. And he was cursed from the moment they touched back in the day when he was cursed to love her forever. The best kind of curse. Stop it. Stop it. It's so good. Yes, we love Angelina here on the on the podcast, so please check out um, Full Moon Over Freedom. It is available in print, ebook and audio wherever books are sold. You can also subscribe to Angelina's monthly newsletter and get some fun, cool flashback chapters from Full Moon over Freedom on her patreon. While you're at it, read After Hours on Milagro Street too. Yes. Thank you to Angelina M. Lopez for sponsoring this week's episode. So I have a question for you both. Were you, I guess, A, interested in reading your mom's books when (laughs) you were children? And were you allowed to read your mom's books when you were children? And once you did, how did that,
2: what did that feel like? What does that feel like now? Um, She asked us, or she specifically asked, well, she asked us to wait until we were 18. She said, just wait until you're 18. Because- <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I said, okay, I'm going to wait until 18. <laughs> yes. Yes. I don't know about my sisters. <laughs> and um, I remember I, I, we were living in Los Angeles at the time, but I'd gone back to London for, um, to visit family and relatives. And I remember starting one of the books while I was in London and I didn't know what to expect. And, I myself, I'm like a hopeless romantic. I, you know, I, I, I I love good, good romantic stories, but I also love adventure and all of that. So it was like right up my alley. Yeah. I started reading it, took it on the plane with me, couldn't put it down, came home, had jet lag, was (laughs) up until two o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Cause I I had to finish it. Yes, I just, and your mom so loved I,
0: this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, she was
2: so thrilled I'm when sure I she finally stopped talking about it with her. She was <laughs> so so thrilled. I was I you know an instant Jackie Collins like mega fan immediately. <laughs> like the, it 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 was, it was crazy. I was like, what's happening next? What are you doing this? Like lu- you know, Lucky was my one of my all time favorites. And um, I like to say nobody really knows this. I like to say it though. Um, She wanted, at one point, she wanted to kill off Lenny. So Lucky Sant'Angelo was married. Her second marriage was to Lenny Golden. And she really, really wanted to kill him off. And I begged her. I said, please. I said, I love them so much. They have such a great marriage. You cannot do this to me. You cannot do this to the fans. Cause I felt like I was like, oh no, that is Good some job. misery. That is serious misery I choices. I know. So people are going to go crazy if you do that. You can't do it. So she wasn't happy with me, but she's like, okay. So I can't remember which book it is, but it's the book where Lenny gets kidnapped and he, and he's in the cave. <laughs> he's, he's held hostage in a cave. And that's when he was supposed to die, but yeah. he didn't. And she brought him back. I was
0: like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's a well great done, story. Good job. <laughs> that's a great story. Gosh. It ama- imagine that's like my mom did that. That's right. Well, my I mean, but that. it makes sense, right? As a, from a storyteller perspective, yeah. Lucky and Lenny were together for a long, and, you know, that yeah. is, that is a way that you could shake things up and force Lucky, you know, Jen loves a, loves a heroine against the wall. And I mean, who doesn't, but. There it is. Right. One of the, a dark moment for, for lucky, but Tiffany saved it. (laughs) (laughs) She wasn't
2: happy with me, but, but I think she knew, I think she knew that's why she did it. Yeah. You were right. Yeah.
0: That's what happens when you're on the, uh, there's a seat on the other side of
2: the desk, right? You get to have that influence. Exactly. That was one of my big moments. (laughs) What about you, Rory? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because Tiff and, and our mom, they were much more aligned in their personalities, And, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they really had, I mean, we all had a great relationship with her, but I was like this highly sensitive, kind of like a fragile child. Like, there's always one in the family, right? Like, I. I, and I, I, just feel like I was drawn, like I was, you know, writing poetry, and I was reading Judy Bloom, and and <laughs> and I knew what my, I kind of had a sense of what Mum was doing down the hallway, but I wasn't exactly sure what she was doing. So I think she was quite protective of me, particularly because yeah. you know she knew that she kind of had to hold things back. So I mean, I also read her work when I was eighteen, and you know, I it's it I thought it was fun and fabulous but it wouldn't necessarily been what I would have been drawn to read at that time um so it was interesting but I continued you know to be a we read every single book she ever sure. wrote of course and you know we were hugely supportive of her work and it was and it was, and I was, and I'm also a writer. So it was, and we, so you, we used to have conversations about writing, um, which was also really fun for me. But I know, as a kid, like probably everybody else around me was fully getting their sex education from my
0: mother. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I, you were getting yeah. yours from Judy Bloom, like many other girls. So
2: <laughs> <laughs> Judy got I had my back covered. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Were there books that were, like, favorites with readers? I mean, this is always, like, a really interesting – I mean, Lucky, Santangelo, I think, clearly. I mean, I, I heard that name and felt like – I was like, oh, I remember this, right? Um, or were
2: there ones that were her favorite? Well, I mean, definitely Lucky. That's why she continued her in so many books, for sure, Lucky. But uh, one book that really stands out that she loved was uh, called American Star. And it's, like, this epic love story. Um, and, uh, it's a fan favorite as well, reader favorite as well. Um, and actually I need to reread that because I haven't read that in several years. And so I, I really want to go back to that. And then also, um, Lovers and Gamblers was, uh, it happens to be one of my favorites, but it was also one of our mother's favorites. Um, and that was, um, that was an early, earlier book, 1978, seven, yes. Uh, so it was before chances and before Hollywood wives. Um, and it was really when she started writing this kind of epic genre where it took you all over the world and so many stories weaving into each other. Um, and we're so, we're so excited right now because um, it's being adapted to be made into um, a television um, uh, show, television sort of, uh, yeah, miniseries. Um, so we know that she would be thrilled. we're really excited about that we can't wait for that to happen sure
0: bring her bring her to a new bring these characters to a new generation right yes Yes. So, i have a question that's also kind of related to like which is she recorded her own audiobooks which is i mean audiobooks are so big now right i mean they just say that you know this is like a sector of publishing that is like booming so have you I mean but she didn't as far as I can tell record all of them. So was there a reason behind
2: the one she chose? Was Yeah, to, I mean to be honest we don't actually know. Like I was shocked to discover that Hollywood Wives hadn't that she hadn't recorded Hollywood Wives in audio and it has been recorded and will be and it's coming out in July for this 40th anniversary by a fantastic narrator called Emily Tremaine but we were quite surprised and we we don't know. We don't know why that particular one, it might've been a contractual thing. I'm not sure. Like we don't know why that didn't happen. Um, but she did. And, and the other audio that she did record, because of course at the time she was recording when it was cassette tapes and then it was CDs. Right. And you know, right. when and they were, so you long, would get them in like, like, like giant like, cases. Of boxes. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> like 25, you know, tapes or, you know, <laughs> 10 CDs. And so they often had to abridge the stories, which I'm sure, you know, didn't help. But, But it is super fun to be able to listen to the ones that she did record. Sure.
1: So the other fantastic thing that's happening now is that our niece, India Thane, has been re-recording some of our mother's titles for Simon & Schuster in the UK. So um, she actually did an audio of Lovers & Gamblers, And I believe Lucky was the other one that she did. And it's just, you know, it's just such a beautiful thing to see it come full circle because she was the first grandchild. She had a very close relationship with our mother. And, you know, she really had listened to also, as Tiff said, you know, she'd been on the receiving end of hearing our mother read. So that's a a reflection, hearing her reread the stories now. That's lovely.
0: So I guess that this sort of leans into or leads into um, a conversation about Jackie Collins, the businesswoman. Um, because, you know, the the documentary is called Lady Boss. There's a book called Lady Boss. Lucky is a lady boss. There, everybody's <laughs> a lady boss in her books, and it, I love it. I'm very much there for that core story. But um, I'm sort of – I'm really fascinated particularly by women in this early – the sort of 70s and 80s in publishing when publishing was so dominated by men um, having the really keen business acumen to – hold control of their, their empires, right? And, and run the show. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit, was that, um, was that intuitive for your mother? Was she always thinking about business as well? I know that she obviously had a business manager who was in the, who was in the, um, the documentary, but it seemed very much like Jackie called the shots. And, what was the balance between Jackie the writer and Jackie the businesswoman, Jackie the brand? Were they all sort of one, one thing? It uh,
2: Well, she was. Uh, she was a huge promoter of her books. Like she worked tirelessly to promote, um, and that kind of. What w- we have heard from so many people at the publishing houses of how she would go out of her way to go in and meet everybody, even you know people with very small you know, not necessarily important jobs. She would go into every room, introduce herself. She would take photographs with them. So she was she, she was always working, you know, and, and creating these connections at, at the publishing houses, but also in the bookstores too. She, she was constantly going in. Rory and I are doing um, an event at Book Soup in Los Angeles in July for the publication mm-hmm. of, um, of Hollywood Wives. For the republication for the new reissue um and um he was telling us the story of how she was you know always in there you know saying where where are the new books where are you placing them but she had relationships with all of the booksellers across the country you know she would always go in and either sign books or make sure you know how are sales going do you have enough you know when we look back and we see email and correspondence between her and her publisher she's asking all the important questions you know how many books are being sold when are they going to be there and you know she'd put us to work too you know whenever we were in a bookstore we'd have to go and we'd have to look and see how many titles were there and if the they shelf. were take it out put it up on a prominent <laughs> place on a shelf so that someone perusing would see ah Jackie Collins <laughs> true. so but she did have mm-hmm. an
1: extraordinary attention to detail and you can see that in her work and that of course spilled over into her, as you say, Jen, her business acumen, you know, and it was she didn't yeah, she would proudly say, you know, she didn't even finish um high school, right? So she didn't consider herself at all kind of well-educated or intellectual in any way whatsoever, but she had this business savvy. It was definitely intuitive. It was definitely instinctual. And she also had a steep learning curve she learned on the job. And she had a good partner in our father who also, you know, again, was alongside her. But, you know, she would read, you know, every single contract. She'd be asking questions. You know, she'd always stand up for herself and she always would hold her ground and ask for more. You know, she was never... Ever in that situation where she was like, Oh, well, I'll just accept what they've given me. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that she got some of the highest, particularly certainly for a female author. I think in the 80s, she was awarded some of the highest advances ever in publishing. Um, with right. a letter from her agent at the time, Morton Janklow, who passed away recently, he, you know, they had this long standing, fascinating relationship where, you know, he wrote to her and he said, This is, you know, this is, I think she had. I think it was the first deal for Hollywood Wives, in fact. And Hollywood Wives was her ninth book. You know, she was not Mm -hmm. at the beginning of her career. She had been working her butt off to get to where she was with Hollywood Wives. And she got a a million dollar advance, which was unheard of. No, a lot of money. (laughs) It's unheard of. So, you know, she was quite extraordinary in that. She set the bar very high for herself and and she kept pushing.
0: I mean, she's so clearly a feminist, right? And so... Was that tied into the way she thought of herself as a feminist and also like the way in which she taught you and your sisters all to think about yourselves as women in the world?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yes. You know, she, like I said, she taught us to be strong women to make, um, you know, decisions based, not based on, you know, being with a man. It was to think for ourselves, you know, she always used to tell me growing up, I think you should be a director. There's no female directors in the world, Mm -hmm. you know, so she was always, she was, you know, looking at that. She was such a trailblazer. She was so ahead of her time, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in that way of thinking. So she really, I think she, she hadn't liked what she'd seen growing up. She didn't like the chauvinistic tendencies that her father had. And she knew that she didn't want that for herself or for her daughters, and so, but simultaneously what
0: a gorgeous representation of how feminism can exist alongside partnership which is really a big piece of your your mother's life personal life and also her books there's there is space to be a strong lady boss feminist and also have love and partnership and support and have be equal with that partner.
1: Yes. I mean, she was just, you know, very focused on equality. That was incredibly important to her. You know, she it, she was so frustrated by the injustices that she saw, particularly around women and the way that women were demeaned or diminished. And as you say, she was walking through these worlds that were just populated by men. So she had continued to have a felt experience of that life, right, where she And and she did. She was hugely respected in the publishing industry, but I'm sure she still encountered sexism at every gate. You know. Well, as you can see, I mean, the way
0: that a lot of men seem to think they knew what she was doing, or trying to do, or attempting to do, or achieving. I mean, that it's really watching that documentary. It was just really, it was bracing. Is sometimes the word? It was bracing. Yes.
1: And the other thing that we haven't actually mentioned is that she was, in terms of her writing, sex, like putting sex on the page. She was defiant th- about that. She was not going to be shamed for that because she—that was definitely where she saw the inequality that men could write whatever sexual experiences they wanted, even from the point of view of the woman, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so she was, and that was something that she felt so strongly about, and she refused to be shamed. I never saw her feel any shame around that whatsoever, and that for me was very inspiring. A queen, and
2: mm-hmm. and also exposing these. Exposing these men, these Hollywood types, she was exposing them. And you know, people. She used to say people didn't believe what she was writing. You know, she had to tone down the truth to, in order to put it in a book. Mm. But since she's since she's been gone, since she died, that the scandals that have come out oh. that she literally wrote wrote about the sleazy producer, the sleazy politician. You know, the corrupt TV producer. I mean, it's just it's one after another scandal that she literally had to tone down in her books because people wouldn't believe it. Yeah. I found myself really thinking that, that there was a way in
0: which like, if you have any question about me too being real for long, long time, read Jackie Collins Mm -hmm. books, right? Like Mm -hmm. there, there's no question that she that inner, that interest in like power and money and the privilege, especially in a, a, I, I find it very like moving to think about like taking on the industry that like, tells you how to, like, see the world, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, think about how it filters into, you know, like, you know, we watch TV and movies and that's how you see the world. And to be a woman to say, I'm going to tell you about that world in a different way. I mean, it's a visionary. It really is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she
1: was a visionary. And also having reread Hollywood Wives, uh, it had been many years since I had read it, but I was just so struck by that when I was reading. I was oh my God, she just, you know, she had named all of it, right? She, it was right, again, Mm -hmm. right there in those chapters on the page. And she she was very exposing and i think that's why at the time it was it was quite shocking like nobody had ever written a book like that but and she would say still that people would still come up there was something she was so interesting with it because she wasn't threatening with it like i do think she threatened men but somehow I think she also used her own sexuality and her own power, right? Because she was a very beautiful woman, right? So she would also attract men, but she told these horrifying, I mean, my skin was crawling sometimes reading Hollywood Wives at some of these Uh scenes. I knew they were true. I knew they had things, some things that she had experienced personally. Um, She also has a fabulous sense of humor, our mom. And a lot of people who have read her books don't know about that. I mean, at times they're just hilarious, right? So she always had this balance. This week's
0: episode of Fade and Mace is sponsored by Max Monroe, author of Best Frenemies. So Katie Dayton is a hardworking teacher, and it is spring break. And you know what? She is going to treat herself right. She books herself a vacation rental. She's going to go have a great time for the week. The last person she wants to get stuck with, especially, is her arch nemesis from work, Max. Houston. Perfect. And yet somehow this man has been accidentally booked into the same spot as her for the week. And so now no. they're going to have to figure it out. But this involves things like him accidentally seeing her naked. Oh right? Like, God, is, isn't that always the way? Of course. <laughs> All she wanted was relaxation, wine, and fun in the sun. And instead, she is probably going to go to jail after dealing with this man the way she wants to. So, um, it, are they going to figure it out? Are this Is this workplace romance going to what's only be one week long? Or are they going to take it back to uh, their real world? So, this is the perfect kind of spicy standalone rom com readers will love. You can read Best Frenemies in print, ebook, audiobook, or with a monthly subscription to Kindle Unlimited. Thanks to Max Monroe for sponsoring this week's episode. I think that uh, if we can talk a little bit about Hollywood Wives, because it is, would we say, this is the book that, that sort of launched her into the stratosphere, know, the, the stratosphere yeah. of publishing, it feels. And I think we've sort of touched on why it was such, why it was so amazing for readers and why readers came to it. Obviously, there's, you know, all the things that come with a Jackie Collins book. It's it's fun and it's lush and it's lavish and it's full of all these stories and people who we see and, 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 you know, idolize and it takes them all, it brings them all down in a, in a lot of ways to, to real life. But it also feels like normal people like me (laughs) would read this book and say, but oh, wait, I've seen, I know this guy. I don't know this guy at all, right? I've never been in Hollywood, but I do know a guy like that. And I wonder if that was, was that a piece of, of its appeal? Or, you know, why did, why were we all so drawn to this book?
2: I think she exposed Hollywood in the way it, was never, it never had been exposed before. I think at the time she wrote it, you know, It was the mid-80s, and, you know, movie stars were huge. Well, they always have been. Um, I recently saw an interview with her where she said she was sitting at a lunch um, with a bunch of friends, and she looked around. It was one of those um, nice restaurants um, in Beverly Hills, and she looked around, and she saw woman after woman after woman with the same designer purse, designer outfit, nails, perfect hair. She'd say, like, perfect... Uh, you know, work on their face or whatever it was. And she said, who are all these women? And then she said, they are the Hollywood Wives. And she, she was fascinated by seeing all of them in this restaurant, right? That's how sort of the impetus, the idea for Hollywood Wives came about because she felt like they were all of the women who were taking care of the men who were in the forefront of Hollywood. There were no producers, directors. The actors were either... Um, you know, uh, bimbets, you know, as they were called, or starlets, or on the casting couch, or all of that. So she just wanted to bring it all to the forefront. And I, I, I you know, from her own personal experiences, we're sure she had experienced a lot of this. So it was very interesting to expose it, and I think that's why people just lapped it up, because there, they were, they, they would have these parties when the miniseries, the miniseries was one of the number one miniseries in the 80s. And um they would have these watching parties because uh people would sit there and they'd want to guess who the actor was. But it was never anyone in specific. She would just take different characteristics of different actors different stories that she'd heard from you know people whispers here and there and she would you know make them into one general character and it was a guessing game she loved to create this guessing game for her readers i think that's why people just loved it because it really exposed this other side of hollywood that hadn't really been written about before yeah and she had infiltrated it you know she was an inside yeah Yeah. and Yeah,
1: and she did that very deftly because people would trust her. She used to, yeah, because we've been watching old interviews with her. And there was one where she says like, oh, I'm I'm like a bartender and a psychiatrist, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Like people are just like drawn to me. They just come and sit themselves down and tell me everything. And meanwhile, she's, you know, like surreptitiously taking notes under the table. (laughs) Yeah, knowing she's Jackie Collins. Exactly. So that's kind of hiding in plain sight. But that was, her personality was like that, that she was so, she was such a warm and welcoming person, right? And she and people did feel incredibly comfortable with her. But I think that also comes across just her narrative voice. And I think that's why re- readers feel so comfortable. And, you know, as you said, Sarah, like, hey, I you know, I know that guy because, you know, she again, she could just encapsulate a certain character on the page. And whether it was somebody in Hollywood or somebody that you're working with, you know, in your office or, you know, mm-hmm. a in school or whatever. It's like she was able to just just in in a, in a short sentence. Um, really they would just jump off the page and you knew exactly who she was talking about. Right. The ultimate sort
0: of 1980s working girl fantasy is to see that guy taken down. Right. Absolutely. She showed Mm -hmm. us that. Everyone knew, right? Like this was Joan Collins' sister and that she had really experienced so many of the things that were in her books. It really feels to me like it was sort of a double-edged sword for her too because Then the assumption was that, like, anything she had written about, she had experienced or she – right? Like, she was never able to also just take credit for being an amazing writer of fiction, right? Like, it was always just, like, the assumption that, you know, somehow um, because she had been to Hollywood parties that she was just, like, reporting, and I think that's another reason why, you know, I, I really respected in the, in the documentary, especially seeing her kind of defending her work as a storyteller. Like you can sit in a Hollywood party and you're not going to be able to tell the story the way Jackie Collins is, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's so true. Mm-hmm.
0: We often end these conversations asking, uh, asking writers to talk to us about, you know, what endures from their books, what the, what what the mark is that they've left on fiction. And I feel like this is one of those questions that oh, we're so happy we have you because often writers don't, they don't think of it that way. But you all have thought about it this way, I think. So what is the mark that your mom left on fiction?
2: Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a false <laughs> question. You go first. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I you go first. That's I go nice. first, yeah. What is
1: the mark that she left on fiction? Um, I want to say that it's like she she was a door opener, you know, that she was brave enough to open doors that were closed. We talk about the glass ceiling, but somehow I'm thinking about doors with our mother, that she kept opening doors, even doors that seemed like they were locked. She was like, I'm going to figure out how to pick this lock. I'm going to get in and I'm going to, I'm going to find my space in that room. And I feel like that's part of her legacy for female authors who have come before her. And that's something that Colleen really, as we said, like really acknowledges in her forward. So I think she was a door opener. She gave women permission to find their voice, to be bold, to be brave, um, to also not have to to contort themselves into what they imagine that other people expect them to be or expect them to write i think part of her legacy is her is that she offered people freedom like creative freedom and i don't think she I don't know if she would be able to name that herself if she was still here, because, again, it was so intuitive to her. It was just what moved through her. But it's it's interesting being able to take a step back and, you know, think about it objectively. But I would say it was
2: about permission, freedom and
1: door opening.
2: <laughs> I agree. I completely agree with what you say. Um, and I I also feel that she wrote stories that she really wanted um, to inspire women um, and to make women see that there were other options available for them that they could believe in themselves and believe in their own confidence, you know, and I think she used her writing to, you know, send a message to women that they could do anything that they, that they put their mind to. And that's why she wrote such strong female characters. That's why Lucky Sant'Angelo is timeless. Mm -hmm. You know, look at James Mm -hmm. Bond. She used to say, "Lucky." Why, why do you have to put an age on Lucky Santangelo when there's no age on James Bond, and he's gone on for decades? So can Lucky Santangelo, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, she she her her message is timeless. You know, uh, uh, for her readers, that they really can believe in their own confidence because she did, and she said she was a high school dropout, and look at what she did. So it's a, it's a really positive message that she, that she sends. That's amazing. What a legacy for all of you. Yeah. Uh, we're, so, we're so lucky. We miss her so much every day. It's such, it's such a loss not having her in our lives anymore. It really is. But her inspiration lives on and her legacy lives on. And it's, you know, it's our mission to make her bigger than she ever was before, <laughs> you know, even bigger than she was. That's really our mission. Yeah.
0: Well, we are so happy to help. Do our part. (laughs) Thank Um, you.
2: After you've watched Lady
0: Boss, (laughs) if you, like me, would then like to spend the next 48 hours of your life just watching interviews with Jackie Collins being amazing, you can do that on the Jackie Collins YouTube channel where you are uploading or, you know, I I assume have uploaded and are continuing to upload incredible interviews um, where Jackie is just Being
2: amazing, (laughs) yeah, 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 they're brilliant. There's so many interviews, and you you go down this rabbit hole. You could sit for hours. I could be sitting all day watching these incredible interviews. And now, Mm -hmm. what we've started to do with her social media, on her Instagram and her Facebook um, channels and TikTok as well, we've started to take these amazing snippets of parts of the interviews. You know, with these great sound bites. Yeah, that I feel like they could go viral. There's, there's definitely a soundbite in there that we've got It's going to go viral yeah. and where she's, you know, where she's saying everything that we spoke about, you know. Yeah.
1: And it's it's super fun for us to be now running the social media channels because we get to still interact with fans or, you know, at least see comments every single day um, about the impact that she's had. And if we ever ask questions like, tell us how Jackie Collins changed your life. You know, it's so fun reading the stories and You know, it's, and for us, like, you know, this September, she'll have been gone eight years, but she just, it's, she just feels very, you know, her energy, her energetic presence still feels very vivid because, you know, we get to continue her, her work and work with, with the estate and the social media. And it's, it's a joy for us. Well,
0: we'll put links to all of the social media accounts in show notes so our listeners can find them easily. Um, the book is Hollywood Wives. The 40th anniversary edition comes out July 11th uh, in the United States, and I assume all over. Um, but we are so excited. It is such a romp. I had the best time reading it. Um, thank you to Rory Green and Tiffany Lerman for joining us today. We are so thrilled to add your mother to the Trailblazer series. It's beyond exciting for us,
1: oh Willis oh, thank you so much,. Thank you. That
0: might be my favorite Trailblazer episode so far.
1: <laughs> you know what's
0: interesting is, and you know you and I have talked extensively about you know we were reading when Jackie Collins was writing books, right? yeah, and one of the things though, is um. I was very aware of Jackie Collins when I was a teenager, but I didn't really read a lot of Jackie Collins books, I don't think. Um, I I knew that they were, like, romance adjacent, Mm -hmm. not necessarily, like, mainstream romance. Um, And I was so inspired by that conversation. All I want to do now is go read every Jackie Collins book. I definitely read at least one Lucky Santangelo book. Sing. Um and I remember Lucky Santangelo like I remember the the mini series I remember my mom my parents watching that um I was clearly too young to be watching those but you know, I was also too young to watch the Thorn Birds and it's sort of those who are sort of like somehow interconnected in my mind as viewing experiences from my childhood. Watching the documentary, it felt like I was very aware of like Jackie Collins as a superstar, yeah. right? Like, like a so personality. Much, yes. Right. So, I, and I, you know, I think part of it is, you know, we all, there were less, there was less channels, right? So, I mean, the part where she was on with, um, God, who was that guy who did all the interviews uh, with the glasses? Um, I think watching those, like, those were shows I watched. So, kind of like, you know, Dynasty and Joan Collins, it was, all of that was, like, a big part of, like, the ether of, like, that time period. And, you know, watching her, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember seeing this woman. I remember her, her yes. whole vibe. And, of course, right? as a romance writer... And as a romance person, you stumble across that Barbara Cartland, Jackie Collins interview periodically, like over the course of the last of my career. I've seen that a few times. And it's so horrifying that, like, someone who arguably was so committed to stories of manners in Barbara Cartland, that clown, would come onto a stage, sit next to someone on a couch, and then just, like, shred them and Jackie comes off as so graceful and gracious and intelligent and yeah like she's not backing down you know just brilliant like you just want to there's no question who wins that even though Barbara Cartland if you watch the whole video we'll put it in show notes the whole video um Barbara Cartland just talks over her the whole time. It's gross, but Jackie comes off looking amazing as she always does. She's so good at the job at, you know, taking the questions that are, that we've all fielded over the years, the comments that we've all fielded over the years and just making people seem small without making, I think them feel small, which is hard. What a trick impossible to do. Um, Listen, I said this at the end of the interview with with Rory and Tiffany, but you, if if you do not miss the YouTube channel where they yes. have curated all of these um, these interviews, and you know where we got the clip from from Jackie for the beginning of the show, I'm so glad we got to talk about writing. Yes, that was the one part of the documentary, right? Like the documentary is about her life and her influence and of course like it's a lot easier to show that with you know like like the footage at hand mm-hmm. but we were really interested in like hearing about her life as a writer and you know Sarah and I had a big list of questions we were going into with thinking like we're not sure that you know anyone could answer these questions for someone else but I was so thrilled at you know they love their mom as their mom but like they are so respectful of her work, yeah. And I thought that that really came through, and it really impressed me so profoundly. I don't know. I was really moved by that episode and in, in just that conversation. And, yeah, because yeah. there was a real sense. I think, and I think this is something that you that you you find when you think about authors like her who are personalities. It's hard to kind of imagine them in yoga pants unwashed (laughs) on deadline, right? Right. Um, Right. Because, I mean, it seems like Jackie Collins never, ever was writing without a full face of makeup, right? But I'm sure that's not the case. And I was really thrilled to hear about not just process, but her clear dedication to craft, like – the, and I loved the, even the, like, little moments where there's just sort of a heartbeat of a moment in, the, in our interview where I think Tiffany says, you know, oh, yeah, she, she emailed back and forth or emailed. She, you know, corresponded with Danielle Steele. She corresponded with Judith Krantz. Like, it makes sense that those names, that those people would find each other in some way. Because who else but Danielle Steele could possibly understand what it was to be Jackie Collins? When we talk about, to authors, about like their their early life as a writer or a reader, right? I mean, imagine coming across the, trev- the treasure trove that must be all of your mom's letters and diaries. Incredible. And, you know, the fact that she wrote in longhand, I thought that was sort of like a throwaway question. And then they were like, oh, no, no, that's actually what happened. She literally never used a typewriter, which is amazing. <laughs> Lady boss. That's all I have to say about that. And I, you know, I just think... There are some people for whom writing is, it's, you know, it's about storytelling. And I think, you know, the Netflix documentary says that over and over again. Like, I feel like there's a pathway to coming to writing that's not about, like, I love books, but I love stories. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was really fascinating to hear about her life, you know, her writing process. And, the way that she, you know, kind of worked, and the way they perceived that as children, but you know, the story about her reading to them, and there was always a chair across I the know. other oh. side of the desk. I'm That's literally going to put a chair in my office that, so yeah. that you know, when my daughter comes in, I can say, "Sit, sit here." Yeah. I mean, it it really it was a wonderful experience listening and watching. You know, so you all are, of course, will have just heard the conversation, but it's clear how much these women just loved their mom and, you know, were committed to her legacy in a really interesting, powerful way. Um, I also, I think it's so amazing how the books spoke so much to readers and being able to hear Rory and Tiffany talk about how readers come to the genre, especially – or c- came to her books, especially on at this moment in time, and you said this, you know, related yeah. to Colleen, Colleen Hoover, who wrote the introduction to Hollywood Wives, the, the 40th anniversary uh, edition. But this kind of real sense of readers coming to these stories for the first time and finding yes. – joy they didn't know they wanted these books um and i think you can't as much as we sort of all i think jackie collins kind of lives as this you know huge huge you know overarching personality for so many of us but i just want to call out you know 500 million copies of her books have been sold um 40 countries 32 new york times bestsellers Um, I'm reading from the press release from Gallery, the publishers of uh, Hollywood Wives. She was awarded an order of the British Empire by the Queen of England in 2013 for her services to literature and charity. And when accepting the honor, she said to the Queen, not bad for a school dropout. A revelation capturing her belief that both passion and determination can lead to big dreams coming true. Amazing. I mean, I really couldn't say it any better. It feels like these women that she wrote were so aspirational for so many people. And there was something really powerful about being able to tell a story about somebody who, no matter how down on their luck they got, was definitely going to become a, a lady boss. Yeah. Well, and I think I just, I think the other thing that struck me, right, was Especially, again, in like watching the documentary is how many of the things that like romance readers are still hearing today, <laughs> right? Like, oh, you know, it seems times have changed and then you go back and you're like, nope, same, same old. And, yeah. it, you know, the way that makes me feel is um, for me, like me personally is I don't apologize for it. Right. But like that scene where an audience full of in the in the Netflix documentary, there is a scene where she's like on a talk show and people in the audience just stand up and essentially like, you know, pin a scarlet A to her. Yeah. You know, right. Person after person after yeah. person. I mean, if and- you haven't seen the documentary, watching it is a sh- it's a shock to see. I watched it with Eric, and Eric turned to me and said, if you had told me about this scene, I wouldn't have believed you that it was as bad as you said. And still, just, she took one, listen, Jackie Collins walked so the rest of us could (laughs) run on that front. Yeah, right. And I think that 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 was the part that was very, I don't know. I think there's a, it's funny, I think that sometimes there's like a conversation about, you know, the cultural way in which romance readers are always in a defensive crouch. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'd be like, see exhibit A, B, C, D, E, right? I mean, mean, and if you think about it, right, Jackie Collins, Danielle Steele, uh, Colleen, Emily Henry, like we are seeing it even today, the sort of big giant, you know, the big giants of you know, when, whatever the year is, right. Whoever the giant is that year having to sort of defend. Right. Um, and I think that, but I do want to say the other thing that really was interesting to me is I've sort of been thinking over the last couple of weeks since we knew we were going to interview them. Um, I've been thinking a lot about like how, I mean, we don't talk about Jackie Collins' book as romances, right? Right. right. And I don't think they are romances. That's not what they're trying to do. That's not the story or the fantasy that they're selling. They're selling a very different kind of fantasy than romance does. But it sure feels like they're cousins. Yes, absolutely. Well, and I think it's interesting. I I found myself thinking so much about books that were written sort of contemporaneously, right, with – Hollywood Wives, or in the wake of Hollywood Wives, I would say, right? right? Especially um, categories, that, yes. And that's what I was thinking. Like, I bet that those, right? I bet that the 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 categories I was reading in 1984 and 1985 about sexual harassment at work, yep, were directly influenced by Jackie Collins, right? And so there's a way in which, like the the you know. Things that are happening in the culture always, always trickle into romance. And it was really interesting to think like, oh, I hadn't realized that this was a, you know, an influence until we talked to them and like sort of heard about it. And then I was like, oh, of course, right? Of course. Because here is someone who's like, you know, opening the doors, right? As Rory said at the end, opening the doors to here's a new conversation we get to have about what it is like for women at work. And of course, then once you open the doors, romance is like, ooh, there's an open door. Let me step through. Let me see what I can do in that space. And it's hard to imagine, like, you think about, say, Judith McNaught's Perfect, or, you know, a number of Sandra Brown books, you know, during that time where they walk right up to the wealth line, right? To the sort of these jobs that are, that glitter. Yeah. And it's hard to imagine that they weren't also aware of, like, the dialogue with these books that, as I said, my editor uh, told me were called the sex and shopping books on the, you know, on the other side by the men in sales and marketing. And they weren't, again, not romance, but definitely that the wealth piece, the sort of fascination with extremely Wealth and power. wealthy, powerful men in those categories and single title contemporaries of a particular, it's a particular voice that's being, you know, that you can see it through line through in romance. Um, and it had to have been the influence of Collins and Steele and Krantz and Barbara Taylor absolutely. Bradford. Yeah, absolutely. I was, you okay. know, we continue to talk about how every single trailblazer is a gift. This one so different. So different. But you know what? It was just really fascinating to think about like, what was the landscape out there? And for sure, it is no, it is a, a, like a fact, I think, to say that many a romance author probably looked at Jackie Collins for the model of here's how I am going to move through the world with these questions, mm-hmm. and hi, here's how I am going to um, talk about my work. Um, To a hostile and uh, patriarchal audience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And here's how I am going to ignore them and focus on my readers. Yeah, Right? It it was inspiring. Yeah. I mean, we didn't talk with uh, Rory and Tiffany very much about the armor of Jackie Collins. But one of the things that I was really drawn to was this idea that she put on Jackie. Right? Like, there was – and obviously, her sister was Joan Collins. She – basically grew up in Hollywood I mean once you know she was what 16 when she came to Hollywood like to be with her older sister um and so obviously a lot she comes by a lot of this like glitz and glamour naturally but the the idea of like nobody wore leopard print until Jackie started putting putting on leopard print every time because she had this kind of affinity with the leopard or the panther or whatever she has them all there's this great photograph in the documentary of like maybe we can find it to share you know here but look down and i'll see it right with (laughs) her just like surrounded by cheetahs yes amazing and it's fantastic and i just think this idea of like donning armor to face the world when this is the work that you're doing when you know you are sort of constantly shining a light on like misogyny and the double standard and you know the way women are treated and the way power is you know passed on from person to person in these places and I think the armor it is there because she was literally going to war every time she sat down. She didn't know what Merv Griffin was going to ask her or what Oprah was going to ask her. And, you know, when you look at all these interviews, there's always the same, you know, it always dances up to the, you know, well, the scenes are so sexy and how do you do it? And what about who, you know, who are these salacious people? And can you name names? And what did happen with Marlon Brando? And like, I imagine to field those questions which are so critical to your brand, like and your readers are asking them and also, you know, yeah. hold hold to your firm belief that you're doing a thing and that you're, you know, a kick-ass writer, as she described herself. Like Right Absolutely.
2: Yeah, you gotta I to mean, put
0: on the leopard print to do it. Sure, and that was you know, and I think the other thing I was really struck by is outside of Oprah, mm. it was so many men. It was Larry King. Yeah. I finally remember his King, name, right? Yep. <laughs> I was like, you know, the glasses, you know that it was so many men. And you know what though, I I think often about when Stacey Abrams went on the uh, oh, Stephen yeah. Colbert Stephen show, and he made her, and he made her read. And he oh, made wow. her read. Or was I mean, going this, to. yeah, I mean, this you know this men calling women to task in this way right it has not has not changed yeah and I think it's it was really uh, uh, I cannot say enough about how if you've not watched this documentary you should it is terrific yeah I mean I'm now a Jackie Collins evangelist after I watched it I then spent 48 hours just like with that YouTube channel like
2: Auto yes. playing
0: in the background because she's amazing. Yeah, um, Yeah. so that was the first show of Blazer we've done with somebody who, you know, knew a person. Um, you know, because we've, of course, tragically, she passed away um, six years ago. Um, but it's, it really did give a whole new, it opened up a whole new world for me in terms of like, well, who else could we talk to who would be able to Speak like this, right? Right about their person, about their person. Yeah. So, (sighs) what a joy! It was a real joy. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you are going to, uh, you know, read some Jackie Collins books and you know, mainline the eighties and get out there and watch that documentary. Put on your shoulder pads. (laughs) Don't take any (laughs) shit. Don't take any shit from anybody. What would Lucky Santangelo do? Pick your ass. That's what she'd do. Find her happily ever after. Oh, and how about that story from Tiffany about how she was like, you cannot kill Lenny. <laughs> oh, yeah. A mate, like, a, talk about it, someone who understands the I know of the H-E-A, Tiffany, right? there's a whole world of romance novels <laughs> waiting for you when you're ready. <laughs> I loved it. I loved the entire thing. It was terrific. Don't forget to check show notes for all of the information that we talked about just now. Um, Head over and watch Lady Boss, it's on Netflix right now. Um, Pick up Hollywood Wives, which is really deliciously fun. Um, And uh, yeah, what? Just ask yourself every day, all day long. Well, what would Jackie Collins do right now? That's my new. That's my new mantra. A different kind of JC. I don't know how how else to end, but there, everybody. Thanks for listening. You can check us out at FadedMates.net. You can join our Patreon to discuss this and other things with our listeners and with us. Find out more at FadedMates.net slash Patreon. Thank you, Sarah, for that save. You can also find us on Instagram at FadedMatesPod and on Twitter, if it still exists, at (laughs) FadedMates. Welcome to season six, everybody. Uh, We're starting with a bang.